the record of Japanese American resistance is much broader and deeper than we've been led that we've been led to believe. From UW Tacoma, this is Pod Defiance. Welcome to Pod Defiance, where we don't lecture, but we do educate. I'm Eric Wilson Edge. Today on the pod, Japanese American resistance to forced removal and incarceration during World War II. Historian and author Tamiko Nimura joins us to talk about her new book she co-authored with Frank Abe. We hereby refuse Japanese American resistance to wartime incarceration is a graphic novel that chronicles efforts to push back against U.S. government policy that denied Japanese Americans their rights during World War II. We'll talk with Nomura about this history, including what life was like in internment camps and the little-known Supreme Court victory that helped shut them down. Amiko Nomura, thank you for joining us on Pod Defiance. Thanks for having me again. (laughs) So the first question I have is I think it might be helpful for folks who are listening just to uh, put us in that moment in history in which your your book talks about. So December 7th, 1941, the Empire of Japan bombs Pearl Harbor. And then I'm wondering if you can sort of set the, give us the context of what happens next for um, folks who are either uh, Japanese living in America or Japanese American, they're citizens. What are the next few weeks and months look like? Great. Thanks for asking. And honestly, um, a lot of folks start start to tell the story of camp with Pearl Harbor. But honestly, Pearl Harbor was really a culminating incident that became an excuse to incarcerate Japanese Americans um, and their uh, Japanese um, parents, the Issei, the first generation. Um, We're really talking about decades of anti-Japanese legislation in our state and in, in the country, really, um, decades of surveillance, uh, different forms of prejudice, uh, racism, and discrimination. And so Pearl Harbor um, really gave folks an excuse uh, to round up Japanese Americans and put them into concentration camps. Um, after Pearl Harbor, shortly after um the uh, government began a sweep of um, all known Japanese community leaders that they could find, um, ministers, teachers, prominent business leaders, um, and basically uh, took as many as they could away. Um, FDR, uh, President Roosevelt signed Executive Order 9066 in February 1942, Um uh, which authorized the military to remove forcibly remove Japanese Americans from the West Coast with a radius of, I think it's about 120-ish miles uh, inland from the West Coast. Um, so there, for Japanese Americans then, there was a lot of uncertainty, shock, um, terror, uh, shame, um, depending on where you lived, but also uh, what age you were. Um, a lot of the folks, including my dad, who was second generation Japanese American, um, were going to school and uh, really had few ties directly uh, to Japan and really considered themselves American. And so for the government to consider them um, 
enemy aliens and to round them up was um, terrifying and shocking for so many. Yeah. So, um, you know, after um, Executive Order 9066 was signed and the military began the forced removal of Japanese Americans from the West Coast, um, Japanese Americans had often a week or less to set, quote, settle their affairs, um, dispose of their personal property and pack whatever they could carry for um, an unknown location. Um, so they store as shopkeepers, as um, sold their goods for pennies on the dollar, um, either gave away their cars or sold them again at very little um, and uh, tried to dispose of their property, whatever they could uh, pack and put into um, storage with friends possibly or um, simply to give it away. Um, and then, um, over a period of a few months, um, the military began the forced removal of Japanese Americans, um, put them on buses or trains, um, including here in Tacoma, and um, shipped them to um, what are called assembly centers, but are really temporary detention facilities, um, often in desolate locations, hastily constructed um, a lot of folks in California went to uh, converted racetracks. Um, so the inmates then lived in converted horse stalls uh, for some time. And after that, um, they were then shipped to more permanent locations, uh, which were concentration camps, often in um, the desert. So uh, your book, um, We Hereby Refuse Japanese American Resistance to Wartime Incarceration, um, it sort of has three narratives working in it. Um, there are three sets of like main characters, I guess is a way to think about it. That's right. Are, um, if you could give us a little synopsis of sort of those characters. Sure. Um, there are three main characters, though, of course, these are people, <laughs> uh, real people. Um, the first one is Jim Akutsu, who is from Seattle. Um, he's often considered the inspiration for author John Akata's novel, No, No Boy. And Akutsu refused to be drafted from the concentration camp at Minidoka because after the Selective Service classified him as an enemy alien and not a citizen as he was by birthright. Um, the second character is Mitsie Endo, who um, was recruited to a lawsuit contesting her imprisonment. Um, she refused a chance to leave the concentration camp at Topaz so that her case could reach the United States Supreme Court. And the third person is Hiroshi Kashiwagi, who resisted government pressure to sign a loyalty oath at City Lake, and then later yielded to larger pressures to renounce his United States citizenship and put himself at risk of deportation. Um, Kashiwagi is my uncle. Your uncle and your dad were both imprisoned in these camps. Uh, and I'm wondering, is that what spurred your interest in this history and doing this kind of research, um, where was hearing these stories, if, if you did hear these stories growing up, and um, the impact that had on you and your thinking uh, as you moved forward in life? I had always grown up with camp, I, it seems, in my knowledge base. Um, you know, my dad was incarcerated, right? And so... Um, 
family gatherings. They talked about camp a little bit here and there. My dad um, brought home books, um, particularly Yoshiko Uchida's books, Journey to Topaz and Journey Home, about a young child's experience um, based on her own experience going to concentration camps. Um, And my dad actually wrote uh, a memoir, which hasn't been published yet, of his time in camp. Um, He died when I was 10, though, and... In part, my interest in camp history has been an effort to be closer to him. Um, and honestly, I, I, I laugh that you call me a historian, though I am, because um, I didn't start out as a historian, really. I started out as a literature scholar, and literature is still one of my very first loves. Um, but in doing so much work and reading and research on the incarceration and finding that people were eager to hear stories of the incarceration and Japanese American experience. That's really how I um, broke into public history that I've been doing for the last five or six years. I learned a lot from reading this book. And one of the things um, that I learned was about this group called the Japanese American Citizens League. I wonder if you could talk about this organization and then maybe give some perspective on how we are to think of this group and the, the actions it took during World War II. As I was reading it, I had a hard time reconciling some of the things they were doing um, and the decisions they were making during the war that seemed to me to put Japanese and Japanese Americans uh, in very vulnerable situations uh, and handed over a lot of authority to the U.S. government. Sure. Um, The Japanese American Citizens League uh, calls itself um, our community's oldest civil rights organization. Um, It was founded before World War II. um, And I think in the time before the war served um, for a lot of folks as a social organization, a place for the young Nisei, the second generation folks, uh, to gather, um, really uh, do fun things, (laughs) right? Um, after Pearl Harbor, when so many uh, first-generation community leaders were rounded up and imprisoned, um, the JACL took on um, a different role in the community and really tried to uh, become spokespeople for the Japanese American community. Um, and yes, they um, have a really complex role and a complex history. Um, Some will tell you that, yes, they were young, right? Really like 20s, right? Maybe early 20s or so um, to mid 20s. And they thought that they were trying to do what was best. And so they tried to um, really uh, go along with the government's um, narrative that going to camp was the most loyal thing that you could do and to prove your loyalty to the United States by going willingly into uh, into camp. Um, other harsher critics of the JCL will tell you that the JCL was absolutely com- complicit in the incarceration, and there is historical evidence for that uh, complicity. Um, and really, um, the JCL still exists today. It still is um, the community's largest 
um, civil rights uh, organization. But um, other folks, I think, have um, formed different social justice organizations. Um, different chapters around the country have different programs and, and aims and needs. Um, and so, yeah, we do we do tell a different story of the JACL than what folks might normally know in this graphic novel. I wonder if we could take a second to talk about um, these loyalty oaths that were given to Japanese and Japanese Americans. In particular, I want to focus on two questions. One had to do with asking folks whether or not they were willing to volunteer for the draft and serve uh, in the U.S. military. And the other one, which was a very tricky question that I feel really um, was meant to sort of entrap folks, had to do with asking folks if they would renounce their allegiance to the Emperor of Japan. Um, as you the, as you lay out in the book, most of these folks were Japanese Americans. They had no fealty or loyalty to the Emperor of Japan. And so if they answered yes, then they were basically saying they at one point um, were loyal to the Emperor when they never were. So I wonder if we can talk about these loyalty oaths uh, and the impact they had. Questions of loyalty have haunted the Japanese American community for a very long time. And a lot of this comes from our wartime incarceration. Um, so if, you, if you've read the book, you'll see that um, loyalty oaths actually came around partly from the JACL themselves. Um, maybe if we sign papers attesting that we're loyal, um, it will be okay. So this is partly what happened in the Mitsie Endo case when she and other California state employees were trying to file some collective um, lit um, litigation against the state of California for being fired, um, really because they were Japanese. <laughs> um, and um, the um, there were kinds of questionnaires. Like, you know, I think Endo's initial questionnaire was something like. 140 something questions <laughs> all about, you know, um, you know, what kind of newspapers do you read? Um, who do you hang out with most? Um, and of course I'm paraphrasing, but, um, you know, uh, did you go to Japanese language school? How long, um, how much Japanese do you know? Um, what kinds of cultural ties do you have to Japanese culture and so on and so forth? Um, and this is partly how Endo's attorney, James Purcell, found her. Um, but later on uh, in the concentration camps, um, the, um, the camps, right, were, um, had gone on for a few years and um, they had to figure out a way to release Japanese Americans um, out of camp. There was becoming less reason to hold them there and uh, constitutional cases kept marching forward, including Endo's, how can you detain loyal citizens? And so this thing called the application for leave clearance was administered to all folks who were 18 and older. Um, and questions 27 and 28 are the ones that you're talking about. Those are um, the questions that basically tore the community apart. Uh, question 27 was, are you willing to serve in the military on combat duty, wherever ordered? Um, and the second one, uh, question 28, is, will you forswear 
loyalty to the emperor of Japan. And as, yes, you pointed out, and as we show in the book, this is a trick question. <laughs> um, and first generation folks, my, my grandparents, for example, right, had a really hard time with this question. If they forswore any loyalty, um, they would become stateless, right? They would have no country if they had um, any kind of loyalty. Um, and they were not allowed to become citizens in the United States. There was anti-Japanese legislation, um, anti-Asian legislation forbidding them from becoming citizens. Um, and for the Nisei, my dad's generation, um, the question became, yes, did, what do you mean renounce? We never had that really in the first place. And if you answered anything except yes and yes to those two questions, you were considered disloyal. You could, you, you couldn't write, um, this is a trick question <laughs> or, um, as my uncle did, uh, refuse to answer, um, and be considered loyal. Um, anything other than the answers yes and yes were considered disloyal. So ultimately, this is a, these are stories of resistance, right? And which I think is important to remember. I think we, mm-hmm. we, we, are, we fall into this trap of thinking like, oh, you know, why did more people stand up and say, well, a lot of people did, um, right? That's a, there were quite a few folks who were like, yeah. no, we're not going to do this. This is, yeah. this is messed up. Um, so since you know, this is a story about resistance, and uh, let's talk about mm-hmm. that resistance and how did it play out for these folks? How successful were they in terms of, um, getting, you know, being, getting, I guess the ultimate goal is to get an acknowledgement of their rights as citizens and closing down these, these camps and being able to return to their lives. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sure. I mean, <laughs> um, success is a really interesting word when, you, when we talk about resistance in this case, right? Um, but um, first things first, I wanted to really just say that the, res- the record of Japanese American resistance is much broader and deeper than we've been led that we've been led to believe. Um, for a long time, the narrative has been, "Oh, you know, man, those poor Japanese Americans—they all got rounded up, and they don't really know why." And um, isn't that horrible? And I think it really um, detracts from seeing the humanity and the agency the Japanese Americans did have that there were so many who resisted in a, in a lot of different ways. Right. And we show that in the book, um, there were the legal cases, right. Like Mitsuya Endos, which went all the way to the Supreme court, along with the cases of Yasui Hirabayashi and Korematsu. Um, the, there was resistance uh, from uh, first-generation mothers who contested their sons' changed citizenship status and the draft. Um, there were, were people like Akutsu and people at um, Heart Mountain um, who uh, actually organized a, a collective draft resistance. Um, and there were folks um, like my uncle who refused right to answer um, the loyalty oath questions, uh, quote, properly, um, and pay dearly for that. Um, so in, as far as success goes, right, um, I guess we could sort of talk about Endo as, quote, successful in that her Supreme Court case actually was successful. She won unanimously. <laughs> um, the court determined that, no, you actually can't indefinitely detain loyal American citizens. Now, of course, loyal is a really interesting word here 
But um, her case was one of the cases that really led to the closing of the camps. So in that in that sense, successful. Um, Akutsu um, and Kashiwagi really, I think, um, found uh, more paths towards justice in the redress movement of the 1970s and 1980s. And my co-author, uh, Frank Abe, was part of that movement um, to seek um, reparations for Japanese Americans. Um, and, you know, other forms of protest were not so successful. Um, the Issei mothers who wrote their petition to the uh, government from Minidoka, they got a little message back from Eleanor Roosevelt and uh, just kind of encouraging them to hang in there. <laughs> and she didn't sign it. And that was about it. So, um, but the narratives of resistance, I think, really have been hidden for a long time. Um, my co-author Frank's documentary about the Heart Mountain resistors didn't come out until 2000. <laughs> a long time, right, to not, um, and certainly folks were starting to tell their story before that, but his widely um, acclaimed and distributed documentary through PBS, Conscious of the Constitution, not till 2000. That's so late, right, <laughs> for folks to not have um, an idea of what resistance could look like. Um, one thing I wanted to add about the endo cases that I, mm -hmm. that I read, that I learned from your um, book is that she was actually given the the choice to be like, Hey, you can go. Yes. And I mean, this is, this is amazing that she did this. And she said, no, because the only, if she was let go, then her case was over. That's right. And so she, she stayed in right. you know, this place is just from everything I know, it just seemed awful. Yeah. In order to, you know, roll the dice and maybe or maybe not win her court case, which I thought was amazing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I love that so much about her case <laughs> and about her. Um, and she was very, very quiet, very shy, did not want any attention, really. Um, and she had, after she uh, refused um, the government's plea bargain, because that's what it was, um, she was in Topaz for um, almost another year. Um, and yeah, she could have said, you know, oh, all right, I'll drop my case. I can, you know, leave. She did ask, can I go back to the West Coast? And the government said, well, no, it's still an exclusion zone. And she said, oh, well, if the, the, my case has bearing on that of all Japanese Americans who want to go back to the West Coast. And so I am determined to see this through. And I, that's really some of the most compelling um, moments that I was fortunate to work with um, in this book. So let's talk about, um, th this is a graphic novel and it's beautiful illustrations and there are different, I'm not, I'm not a visual artist, but there are different styles of. Right. Two different uh, illustrators. Yeah. It's really cool um, to see that uh, at play, but why did you decide to go this route? And, and I mean, by that, I mean, in terms of a, a graphic novel, why did you want to do it this way? Sure. Um, so the Wing Luke uh, Museum in Seattle hired four of us, um, a creative team. So myself and Frank Abe as the writers, and then Ross Ishikawa and Matt Sasaki as the illustrators. Um, we had not worked before uh, together as a, as a team, um, but they are doing a series of graphic novels on the incarceration. So their first one 
is called Fighting for America, Nisei Soldiers. That's also illustrated by Matt Sasaki. Uh, this book is the second one in the series about resistance. And then the third book, which will come out in the fall, I believe, is about folks who helped Japanese Americans during the war. Um, so all that to say, um, a graphic novel was not my idea, but I loved the idea because I'd read a lot of graphic novels and I really love the crossover potential that the graphic novel has for a lot of different audiences. Let's maybe talk about what happens after, right? So there's this huge undertaking by the U.S. government. They've got to build what are essentially prisons, um, in the middle of nowhere, often you've got to find ways to feed folks. Um, and often they asked Japanese Americans to build things themselves, right? So mm-hmm. brought out folks in advance to construct the barracks or convert horse stalls or whatever. Another, so, yeah. layer, another layer of degradation. Wow. that's um, Right. And on, on, on stolen lands, right? <laughs> this is, um, <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> um, I did not know that either. Wow, that's yeah. that's awful. The, like, the layers of displacement happening here, right, are, are multiple. <laughs> so what happens, you know, at the end when the these camps are, are closed down? What are do the, Does the government put the same amount of effort into getting people back on their feet and returning them to their lives? Or are they just like, See you later. You're on your own. Like what happens? Most were put on buses or trains with a $25 um, something. <laughs> I don't want to call it uh, <laughs> stipend, but um, with $25 and like a ticket out of where they were. That was pretty much it though. Um, so uh, some folks tried to return home. Um, other folks uh, resettled in the Midwest and in the East um, a lot of folks went to uh, Chicago um, and um, just, you know, or had gone to college, right, To and gotten out early. But most of the time, if the camps were closed and they were leaving camp proper, $25 in a ticket. But, you know, they had almost nothing to go back to, right? Um, so just my family, for example, they were sharecroppers um, before the war. And so my aunt was just telling me the other day that, um, you know, they moved around so much that camp was the longest they'd ever been in one place. Um, And so they really didn't have a house to return to. They had stored some belongings with a friend, uh, a family friend. Um, And that is the case for a lot of Japanese Americans, right? They, you know, tried to store things with friends. Some, uh, very few had caretakers who took care of farms or businesses during the war, but most had to pretty much start over. Thank you to our guests and thank you for listening. Be sure to like and subscribe. You can find us on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Pocket Cast, Stitcher, and Apple Podcasts. 